Hey, so uh, welcome to uh, the Sims podcast, uh, Conversation Currents. Um, I'm really excited to be here today and um, with Dr. Jen Matthews from the University of Technology, Sydney. Um, Jen uh, works in the, the, the Future Roofs uh, group at UTS and today is going to tell us you know, quite a, a lot of interesting things and in the work that she's doing around corals and you know, what's happening with marine heat waves and, and you know, the impact that it's having you know, globally. Over to you, Jen. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh, well, it's an absolute pleasure. Would you like to give us a bit of an intro? And you have a very impressive bio, so please don't be shy. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, okay, so I yeah, am currently um, UTS Chancellor's Research Fellow, um, working in the Future East Group at the Climate Change Cluster um, at UTS, and I'm the Deputy Team Leader of the Future East Team, and I have about... Whew, five students at the moment doing various things but uh, my research is generally on coral nutrition so I look at um, how corals obtain nutrients, um, how they utilize them and how we can figure out ways to to use those nutritional interactions to um, or nutritional benefits to to restore or diagnose um, coral reef health. So yeah, that's kind of my research. I started my my um, career in Thailand. So I went to learn how to dive, and I went um, for a two week holiday. I ended up staying four years <laughs> um, because I just loved. I fell in love with coral. I went diving, and and the first time I saw coral. I, um, it was all these really bright colours, like these fluorescent oranges, bright yellows, neon blues. It was just incredible. And it was only when I came up to the surface that my instructor said that um, actually they, they were unhealthy. They were suffering from something called bleaching. And so corals have this um, tiny algal symbiont that lives in their tissue that typically gives them those greens and browns colours that you associate with corals. But when the waters get too hot, that relationship breaks down. And um, you just look through the coral tissue to the skeleton, white skeleton underneath. And so all this kind of bright colours that I was seeing was really stressed corals. And it made me think, well, something that beautiful when it's stressed, what does it look like when it's healthy? Um, And that kind of sparked my um, interest in corals. And um, I've worked in Thailand for, um, I helped uh, found a marine conservation organisation called Big Blue Conservation Um, and then from there um, in that capacity we did a lot of stuff with um, uh, policy development and marine zonation plans for for the area as well as active restoration techniques like coral nurseries and um, uh, marine debris collections and then um, improving our ecotourism on the island and in our resort as well and then um, from there, I went to do my PhD at Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. And then I got a Human Frontiers Science Program Fellowship to move to UTS in 2018. And that's where I've been since. Well, I think yeah. we're very lucky to have you and, and uh, you know, researching a really critically endangered, you know, ecosystem, you know, that, that you know, obviously Australia has, you know, huge tourist uh, attraction to the Great Barrier Reef and, and, you know, the coral, you know, there is, is you know, significantly at risk. So, um, you know, I think very fortunate to have you with us in Australia and, and you know, with the time and attention you, you're uh, giving to that, which is a great segue into you've just been awarded the uh, the Zimmerman Fellowship. Um, yes. you know, with, uh, Zimmerman is a iconic Australian fashion brand. 
um, and to see them really getting passionate about you know the future of marine habitats, marine environments, and really you know digging deep uh, to, to fund you for the next three years to do a really important piece of work uh, right here in Sydney Harbour. Do you want to talk about the, the nature of that work because it's like it's fascinating feeding corals fat. Yeah, yeah, feeding corals fat, basically, yeah. I mean, like, every organism, every living organism, they require an optimal nutrition to function and to, to thrive and survive. And, and like humans, when we're sick, we might take vitamin supplements. We might take... Uh, we need to make sure we have a balanced diet and that we're getting all the nutrients that we need, and that helps us to starve off any bacteria or viral infections and... Um, be nice and strong and grow strong and healthy and uh, corals are exactly the same. So as I mentioned previously, corals have this this symbiosis with this um, algae, this relationship with this algae in their tissues and that that, uh, relationship is nutritionally motivated and so um, the coral gets the coral animal which is like a jellyfish in a way but um, uh, the coral animal gets uh, photosynthetic products so products from photosynthesis and, and like sugars and, and fats um, from the algae inside its tissues. And in, in return, the algae gets a nice safe place to live. It provides um, uh, other things to the corals as well, like antioxidants and things to, to help the coral um, survive any environmental fluctuations. Um, but then the symbiont also gets all the substrates it needs for photosynthesis from the coral. Being locked inside the coral, it's not got access to the water and all the, the carbon nitrogen that it needs, so the coral gives that to the to the symbiont, to the algae. So, um, yeah, it's a really important um, interaction, and it's thanks to that interaction that we're able to grow reef structures and the entire reefs and reefs that in Australia we can see from space so it's really important and this relationship is very very sensitive to temperature and that's why typically we see corals um, a little bit uh, more north than here um, in a slightly warmer environment they are more optimal around that kind of 26 degree but there are corals living in the extreme ranges um, down here in Sydney. We have a number of species of corals and these include corals that are not found anywhere else. They're unique to Sydney. Um, And with the impacts of climate change warming our waters, we're starting to see new species of corals come down here. Maybe they're seeking refuge from the, the warming waters of the Great Barrier Reef. Um, they're bringing with them fish and, and crabs, and so we're starting to see a shift in our ecosystems. Um, and one of, that, one of the factors that plays um, a, a role in their ability to survive in these colder waters that they're not normally used to is their nutritional flexibility and their ability to um, maintain that nutritional interaction with their symbionts and also with the water because water quality here is different to to up north. So that nutritional interaction is really important for them to survive environmental change, also shift ranges and survive in extreme conditions. And that extreme condition is really important in the context of climate change. If we see um, sudden and... um, uh, extreme and lasting shifts in temperature that disrupts the the biology of the coral and those nutritional interactions 
and if that breaks down then um, we're not going they're not going to survive and if they bleach then unless they the waters cool down and they get their symbionts back they're not going to get the nutrients they need to, to, to grow and so one thing we've been um, investigating or thinking about is um, what if we fed corals instead of them having to rely on the algae getting their algae back or finding food themselves because they can feed themselves they have small tentacles like a jellyfish upside down I guess and uh, they collect nutrients out the water and then they put it in their their little mouth they can do that but they don't do it enough to uh, support their growth and resilience and so and that's why they have the symbiosis. They've not evolved to, to, to be able to feed themselves. Um, they've evolved this symbiosis to help support them. So typically, if corals are bleached, they'll only survive for a couple of weeks and then, and then they'll die, or days even. Um, so what we thought with this feeding is we could do a few different things. We could feed them before bleaching occurs and maybe we could feed them with things that will set them up for if the environments do change, they're in the best nutritional state to survive it. And to um, So things like we could give them fats for energy, we could also give them some of these antioxidants and a lot of the antioxidants actually come in the form of fats. Um, I'm going to throw a chemical out there, something called eicosanoic acid is, is a really important um, precursor to, to some of the fundamental um, antioxidant pathways that we use and corals use the same thing. So um, yeah, so we know these kind of nutritional um, benefits that we could give them. So we could, we could technically feed them before the bleaching event and they don't bleach or if they do bleach then they, they can withstand that temperature for longer. We're giving them a chance to get that symbiote back. Or we could feed them during a bleaching event, or we could do both. We could feed them during a bleaching event, and it means that without their symbiont, they're still able to survive until the waters cool down again. Um, and feeding corals is not a new idea. The aquaculture industry does it to enhance the colour of corals. They do it to enhance their growth, but it's never been employed in a restoration sense before. And one of those major reasons why is because we still don't know a lot about what, um, enough really, I guess, about what constitutes an optimal nutrition for corals and different species of corals under different environmental states. And so that's something that the Sydney corals are um, amazing to offer because they're surviving in these extreme conditions. We've got endemics that have evolved here over a long time and we're getting a shift in the range of subtropical corals down to Sydney. So they all have these different nutritional mechanisms, flexibility and um, also uh, in terms of surviving in these extreme for corals, extreme environments. Um, we want to know what nutritional kind of adaptations they've got and can we leverage off that to inform the, the composition of this feed that we're going to give them. So that's, that's the first part of the project is to identify what, um, if we shift the environmental conditions for these endemic and invasive corals, what do we see in the change in their fat profiles? And then if we can isolate those fats, pretty easy to do for isolate those fats, 
put them into something called a nanoparticle. Now that sounds really technical, but actually if you've ever washed your face with micellar water, that's nanoparticles. They're just little balls of lipids, essentially, bubbles. Uh, so we can load these fats into these fat bubbles, essentially, um, and, and feed those back to the coral during times of stress. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's definitely um, something that uh, we have to start off gathering a little bit more information before we can just go out there and start feeding corals. And obviously there's a restriction to getting to the coral colony to feed it. So there's a whole range of things that um, we need to develop. And that's where this project's really important because it allows us the opportunity to do it. Um, and being a Sydney sider myself, it's great to be able to contribute to the conservation of my own marine backyard. So, yeah. Well, wow, it's a super exciting project, and I think look, it's also you know really exciting that that you know corporate Australia is starting to understand you know that you know for them a relatively small amount in terms of investment back into science can have a huge and profound impact to the long term survivability of of you know our marine environments. Oh, absolutely, yeah. If we're doing it here in Sydney, it doesn't mean that it's not applicable to the Great Barrier Reef or Western Australia or the poor corals in Florida at the moment that are, are suffering um, and the Caribbean. So, yeah, absolutely. This, um, this kind of fundamental local research is, has global applications. Yeah, and look, I mean, it's a good segue just into, you know, I guess the trend of marine heat waves that are happening at the moment. You know, it's the Mediterranean for most of the last two months has been, you know, more than five degrees above. Yeah. You know, mean, mean temperatures, you know, the, the hottest ever temperatures recorded, I think, in the, the high the high 20s, like 28, 29 degrees yeah. Celsius. Uh, Florida, you know, the, the temperature there you know, has tipped the high 30s in, 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 um, in Celsius in the last couple of weeks. 100, actually tipped over 100 Fahrenheit, mm. which is just terrifying. Mm. Um, you know, in the impact that's having, I guess, just on the marine environments. I mean, talk to me a little bit about, you know, in Florida, I understand they've, they've kind of gone past the idea of conservation, you know, and they're, they're creating bio and genetic, genetic libraries mm. to yeah. see what they can hopefully, you know, restore them in the future because yeah. today today's kind of lost. Yeah, exactly. There's been 100% mortality in some areas and those, those corals have gone extinct. But thankfully, um, there was some kind of immediate and drastic conservation actions where divers went out there, they collected fragments of these corals because they knew this water was coming warm water was coming it was predicted and so they went out collected these corals brought them back to um, stable nursery structures on land and they performed yeah they act as a biobank really a biological bank and then we can we can well, they can go and hopefully if the water's cooled down, take those fragments of corals and, and reseed the reef and rebuild these degraded reefs where, where without this um, intervention, they would have just gone extinct. Yep. Yeah, it's definitely an important thing. But for for the size of the Great Barrier Reef, that is just unfathomable. It's just, you know, the Great Barrier Reef expands hundreds of kilometres. The genotypic diversity that you know across that is massive. I don't think we would be able to go out there and take a fragment of every genotype possible and and bring it back onto land. That would <laughs> I just don't think we would be able to do it at that scale. So we need to think about other mechanisms of, of um, in-situ intervention methods. There's some incredible out-of-the-box thinking going on. And that's where like, we really need to start thinking that it's okay to be risky in conservation. It's okay to think outside the box and, and just try some of these 
crazy methods. Like there's people creating clouds over the reef um, in order to help reduce the solar radiation and help hopefully re uh, give them some reprieve from intense temperatures and, and light. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty amazing stuff that they're doing, and and yeah, they can some of the stuff can come with risks and. Um, like the stuff that they're doing in Florida, um, the fragmenting of corals, it exposes a wound to that coral. So would that coral without that wound have survived that bleaching? It's hard to hard to know, but at the temperatures that they're experiencing at this 40 degrees, yeah. it's, it's unlikely they would ever have survived. So it is, it is a risk that we have to take. And, um, and it's, yeah, it's a risk worth taking because the risk of not doing anything is is definite mortality at those kind of temperatures so um yeah sometimes some of these things are a little wacky and a little like you know still need um refining or um some people might say you can't feed every single coal on the reef but why not like the one thing that this project is starting to do that has never been done for corals before is employ a nanotechnology approach and by making these nanoparticles, um, we can we can actually target corals. So the the um, the methods are out there in the medicine world realm to target specific proteins in the human body with lipid nanoparticles that have a little target on the outside of, of this particle or this nanoparticle. And so, what's to say that there isn't a unique protein in corals that we can target on the outside of this lipid nanoparticle and then just release these nanoparticles onto the reef and they go only to corals and feed corals. So there is the potential there for broad, like mass coral feeding that is you know not too far off. Um, we just need to get there and that's why this kind of project is really important. Yeah. Yeah, look, I just love your commentary there about risk and and, um, mm. and I think, you know, thinking outside the box and, and you know, I think for, for probably the better part of the last 30 or 40 years, you know, people have taken, you know, a really cautious approach to conservation mm. and restoration activities and I think rightly so, you know, but we're at a tipping point now where, you know, I don't necessarily know that those prior principles, you know, are, you know, still apply. Mm. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give Sims a quick plug, plug you know, we've got uh, Dr... Uh, uh, Cheng Chen, who's uh, you know working out of um, Southern Cross University, actually doing the cloud seeding project oh, right. here, yeah. here. You know, so you know they've got this amazing technology where they've got these big cannons that, that take up seawater, and then they shoot it you know to high altitude to, to see clouds and mm -hmm. cloud formation uh, over the reef, um, and they're they're getting you know you know really good results. But you know they're, they're sort of also looking at how they apply that. You know, not just from big boats, but but you know when they know that they're going to have you know hot days and bleaching events, how they can have these things on small portable boats, you know, locally active, and, and to go out and to try and provide you know some shelter and cover for, for the coral, um, which you know the, you know in Australia, it's, you know, yes, it's it is. Um, uh, you know, a really significant marine ecosystem, but you know, just in terms of fish habitat, marine stocks, fish stock, um, you know, but also you know the the, the tourism economy in Australia, mm. we're so reliant, um, you know, on things like the Great Barrier Reef. So you know, you can kind of see where where some of these these crossovers are. I guess you know, a question I asked to most of our interviewers, and you know, we've talked about you know marine heat waves, you know. You know 
40 degree um, you know marine temperatures which I can't fathom like I just yeah. I grew up surfing and, and you know Sydney's temperatures would typically you know range between 17 and 21 or 20 even yeah. at 22 degrees you feel like in a warm bath <laughs> you know 40 degrees it's just it's unfathomable um, you know to sort of think about but you know we talk so much in marine conservation about hope and you know hey we have to have hope because we don't have hope then what's the point but but obviously hope's not enough and so you know how do you how do you balance that that conversation about hope with risk in in marine conservation yeah i mean hope is really important it's it's you know hope and passion is what drives the my career really my hope my passion is definitely what drives me but really drastic active interventions with um large-scale or scalable i guess and um and affordable and i mean the Great Barrier Reef. It's an iconic asset. It's uh, it has immense economical va- economic value, like in terms of uh, providing millions of jobs, billions of dollars every year in tourism. Um, provides protein, coastal protection, and even a source for novel medicines. So medicines for Alzheimer's and cancers have been derived from coral reefs, um, and even bacteria. And so and viruses and so you know in the next COVID-19 pandemic who's to say that we can't um, uh, find the cure for it on the coral reef and so they're really really important Um, and hope alone is not going to save them so we need some of these drastic intervention measures even if they have high risk because without it we coral reefs will not survive this century but this is all just buying time for reefs it is really important but we must have um positive changes in terms of climate change and and that requires you know voting for 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 people advocating for positive changes and making positive changes thinking about what we do in everyday life um to try to reduce our carbon emissions and selecting sustainable um products and providers um i just switched my energy provider because i found out that they were actually not very sustainable at all even though they were telling me they were so yeah you know doing think little things like that doesn't make a difference um and i think australia is really great and it's leading the way in, in many ways it is leading the way in terms of climate change um policies but we're still not doing enough absolutely nowhere near so yeah um hope is not enough hope is not going to change the, the policies hope isn't going to keep um the, the sydney marine environment it's beautiful um kind of and diverse uh, form and you know Australia is one of um, 17 countries that is known as mega diverse so it has 84% of our species in Australia are actually endemic and not unique to, to Australia not found anywhere else and so extinction of these species is, is global extinction um, and that includes um, creatures on the on the Great Barrier Reef and in Sydney Harbour so um, it's really important that we we don't just have hope and that we actually have active strategies to doing this. Yeah, look, I completely agree. I, mean, you know, I love your commentary again about, you know, every day every choice makes a vote, you know, whether it's a vote for an elected official, whether it's a vote for the company that you're going to support, you know, and, and you know, those companies who, who, you know, are driving an agenda of change and certainly an energy transition for Australia, you know, which, you know, I know it's a hard conversation to have because, you know, people, you know, 
have been reliant on particular industries for a very long time, but, but I think we're past a point where we get to make you know, luxurious choices and long time scales mm. for transition. So, you know, I think my hope is in, you know, my kids and, and their kids mm. who, who, who will, you know, who will vote and make the right choices and, and you know, we can buy them enough time to, to you know, drive an agenda of change in this country. Well, our kids are going to have to be the ones that have to deal with the repercussions. So it makes me nervous. I have a two-year-old daughter and and I'm scared for her in some ways. Um, But, I mean, selecting sustainable um, products and, you know, supporting companies like Zimmerman who support research and active um, conservation measures, that's really important because um, couldn't do this without funding. So, um, yeah, it, it does start with each and every one of us so that's, um, absolutely not to sound like a, a billboard but yeah it you know it really does it has to it's our movement start um one last thing jen and you know you've been so gracious for your time and, and your insights are amazing and thank you so much but you know i, I always ask the cheeky question at the end just one more thing and, and you know you know what are you reading right now or watching or you know um listening to what's you know what is what does you know what what you know, what's food for the soul for you outside of the amazing research you do every day? Yeah, so I'd love to be able to come back and say something like really profound that I'm reading this book that makes me, I think my husband's reading a book called Outlive and he said it was just changed my, my thoughts of um, uh, like how I live my life and, and I've started to read it and it is actually really, really good but I'm watching MasterChef at the moment and that's really great um, I love cooking I'm not very good at it but um, I find TV for me is soup for the brain and um, I, I just need to uh, relax sometimes I read a lot during my um, during my days at work so um, just watching something mind numbing no, no offence to <laughs> MasterChef it's great I love it and so it's not mind numbing I should stop talking now but yeah I think it's really good anyway and um, I'm enjoying it so I'm halfway through so please don't give me give it away who <laughs> wins I don't know no look that's amazing and I completely understand you know it's, if you want to, if you're going to have a 100% commitment to, to a cause you know in your, in your sort of waking hours it's that nice decompression that you've got, you know, to, to, to come back and be, you know, vibrant and resilient and, and committed to it the next mm. day, you know, so I, I get it and I, you know, I've, we all have our own, you know, our, our own guilty pleasures for me at Survivor, it's not right at the moment, but uh, once yeah. Survivor season's on, it's, uh, that's, yeah. that's, I call very, you know, the, the, the human psychology, it fascinates me. <laughs> Um, Jen, thank you so much for your time. It's been amazing, and uh, you know, I really wish you all congratulations on the Zimmerman uh, Fellowship. And you know, I just can't wait to see the amazing work that you do. Uh, you know, uh, over the next three years, and, and you're in collaboration with Sims and the Aquarium. Yeah, I'm really excited too. And thanks to Zimmerman for supporting this work, and and my, me and my students, and yeah, all the work that Sims do as well. I think it's fantastic. So, thank you. <laughs>